What many people don't know about Dr. Ismael is that he holds a contract to put the first Starbucks on Mars. And uh, there you go. People are happy about that. I'd like him to tell you a little bit about what he does at NASA. Well, uh, I actually don't have any experience with Mars compared to you. But actually, I'm an atmospheric scientist. We use laser atmospheric remote sensing uh, to uh, to measure the atmospheric parameters using, uh, and we have flown all over the world to characterize the atmosphere. Of course, we do have an interest to go to Mars ultimately because that's where this money is, I think. I like to poke fun at scientists because they don't usually get my jokes. Okay, thanks. Um, Dr. Ahmad, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I teach uh, political science uh, at Hampton University uh, and we political scientists create the conditions under which people like Dr. Ismail become rocket scientists. Uh, you must be wondering, uh, uh, there are two Muslims here trying to explain to you Islam. One is a rocket scientist, the other is a political scientist. What's going on here? We're, <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, I just felt that we had never done a program like this at Spring Branch. We've looked at uh, Judaism in depth several times, and we've looked at some other faith traditions and tried to unpack those. Uh, but with what's been going on in the world in the past two years, especially since 9-11, Islam has been... Uh, put forth in many different venues and many different ways, and I thought it would be wise for us to have understanding and not misunderstanding. So on the anniversary week here of 9-11, I thought this would be a good time to turn to some gentlemen who could give us wisdom and clarity about their faith. I'd like to start off with this question. Uh, how often do you pray and why? Uh, Muslims have two, let's say there are two categories of prayers. One is called ritual, obligatory prayer, and the Muslims pray five times a day. One early morning before sunset, uh, before sunrise. Second is early afternoon, third is late afternoon, fourth is at the sunset time, and the fifth is about an hour after sunset. These are ritual, obligatory prayers every adult Muslim man and woman has to offer. The others are informal prayers that you can pray anytime, anywhere, whenever you feel like praying to God. Tell us uh, what the actual five pillars of Islam are. We mentioned that earlier. There, uh, Traditionally, the five pillars of Islam are uh, first thing is the belief, that belief in the oneness of God. Uh, that is the principal pillar of Islam. The second thing is the, like Dr. Mamtaz Ahmad said, is one Muslim is required to pray five times a day, where you stand before Almighty as if you are facing him and submit yourself in the greatest humility. That's, those are the prayers. The third is the fasting during the month of Ramadan. That means you fast for 30 days. Uh, and then cleanse yourself. The fourth is giving alms, I mean charity, 
if you are wealthy, then you know, take care of the other human beings who are in need of your uh, resources. Then the fifth is pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, that's the fifth. The last two are not required on a very Muslim because only people who can afford can do it. So, but uh, uh, the first three are basically uh, the three pillars of Islam that are there for everybody. Thank you. What would you say is or are the most significant differences between Islam and Judaism, Islam and Christianity? Now, as far as Muslims are concerned, there is no fundamental and inherent difference between Islam, Judaism and Christianity. The reason is that the message that Prophet Muhammad preached was not something new. He repeatedly said that he is reaffirming the message that was preached earlier by prophets Moses and Jesus. That's why Islam does not claim any originality on its part. It only says that the religion of Abraham was Islam, the religion of Jesus and Moses was Islam. Therefore, when we use the word Islam or we use the word Muslim, it's inclusive of Christians, Muslims and Jews. That's why the Muslims believe that these three monotheistic religions are the three branches of the Abrahamic tree. Uh, however, there are certain rituals, there are certain forms, and there are certain other aspects in which there are some differences. For example, uh, Islam does not subscribe to the view that there is some chosen people of God who have some exclusive uh, rights to be closer to God than other people. Islam also is very sensitive on the concept of oneness of God on which there should be some uh, significant difference with the notion of Trinity in Christianity. I think that, that those were my points as well. Okay. Uh, in that context, then, you would actually consider us sort of inclusive as part of the Muslim faith here. We say we believe in God. We say there's one God, and we're here to worship that God and to know that God. That's pretty congruent with your belief. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing that comes out in the Quran, which is the holy book, is that uh, uh, Christians and Jews are referred to as people of the book. That means we, we accept not only Christians, but the, the Bible and the Torah as part of our integral part of our faith. Mm -hmm. Okay. There is a verse in the Quran which says that you cannot proclaim yourself as a Muslim unless you believe in Jesus Christ and unless you believe in Moses and unless you believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is another verse in the Quran which very clearly, very categorically says that O oh, you who proclaim yourself as Muslims are Jews and Christians. If you believe in God and if you perform good deeds you will have no fear on the day of judgment. In other words, the Muslims, Jews, and Christians are all believers. They are generic Muslims. And the word Muslim means believer. About 600 years after 
Christ, Muhammad comes along and he receives revelation from God. And then a movement follows him, which becomes modern day Islam. Um, He's the last prophet. This is the final revelation. The Quran is what you base and judge everything by. How do you know, how can anyone know that he was definitively the last prophet? Uh, This issue is a matter of faith. Like all issues related to faith, to prove scientifically or logically, it's very difficult to do. But one can look at uh, the message that Prophet Muhammad brought. He lived 1,400 years ago. His message is as clear and alive today as, as at the time of Prophet Muhammad. All his teachings his, and every one of his uh, actions have been recorded. The Quran is preserved in its original form. You can go to Indonesia, India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, or United States. Pick up a copy of the Quran. There won't, you won't find an iota of difference between uh, one Quran and the other. So literally it has been preserved and Muslims are very protective of that. In that sense, uh, if you look at it uh, from a practical point of view, the message is completed, the message is preserved. So in that sense, it validates the idea that Prophet Muhammad is the last messenger. Okay. That's sure. what our belief is. Of course, proving this is, not, now is beyond our capability. Sure. Let's go to what would be the heart of the issue for just about everybody here today. Islam does not recognize nor believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross in Jerusalem in the, about the middle of the first century. Uh, it's very clear that that's not recognized or believed that that crucifixion of Jesus took place. Yet the New Testament seems to offer eyewitness testimony that that's exactly what took place. So how do you differentiate between those two points of view? Uh, Let me begin by stating uh, how Jesus Christ is regarded in Islam and what is his place in Islamic theology and Islamic societies and Islamic historical consciousness. Jesus Christ is probably arguably the most exalted prophet mentioned in the Quran. No other prophet has been uh, described as the word of God and the spirit of God. Prophet Moses is described as the speech of God. Muhammad is described as the messenger of God. But it's Jesus Christ who is mentioned as the spirit of God and the word of God. Muslims believe in the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, in the virginity of Mary, and in all the miracles attributed to Jesus Christ. However, according to Islamic belief, Jesus Christ was saved by God and was raised to heaven and was not crucified. The Muslims believe that at the end of time, Jesus Christ will reappear because God describes him in the Quran as the promised Messiah. According to Islamic belief, Jesus Christ will reappear at the end of time to establish social justice in this world 
and lead humanity to salvation in the world hereafter. That's how Muslims see Jesus Christ. Why there is a theological difference on the issue of crucifixion, I think the difference lies in the metaphysical assumption, which is that according to Christianity, Jesus was crucified because he atoned for the sin, for the original sin. Muslims do not subscribe to the idea, to the doctrine of original sin. According to Islamic belief, Adam and Eve made an error of judgment. They made a mistake in disobeying God. They repented and they were forgiven. And human beings do not inherit their sin. Every human being is born innocent with a freedom of choice, either to choose the path of good or the path of evil. And every human being will be held accountable individually and is not responsible for the sins of his forefathers. Okay, so we, we do have a, a pretty big difference of opinion when it comes to those theological issues of sin and grace and Jesus dying for sins versus Jesus being brought back to God and being a great prophet. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, explain the exact meaning of Quran and what does the Quran actually mean to Muslims? Quran literally means recitation or recite. Uh, it, it, we believe this is the word and message of God that was sent through Prophet Muhammad. Muslims believe this is the message of God literally, ultimately and uh, completely. And it is, uh, as far as we know, it is the Almighty God who is the protector of the Quran and preserver of that message. And uh, it, it has message, uh, it teaches us what is the relationship. It, first of all, I think most strikingly Quran, it identifies the characteristics or attributes of Almighty God. I think the 99 names that you refer to, they are so brilliantly, clearly spelled out in Quran that it amazes me as a physicist. Uh, the other thing is it, it teaches the relationship of man to God and what is our relationship to fellow human beings. These are the basic essence of Quran. Is the your relay what is God, how how God Himself reveals Himself to you, and then what is your relationship to Him and what is your relationship to your fellow human beings and what our actions are to be, so that we are going through a process in this world so that we pass through ultimately and go to, a, go to heaven, which is our ultimate uh, final stay. Which takes me to my next question. What actually happens to a person when they die? Uh, well, there are certain uh, uh, verses in the Quran that uh, address this issue, and then there are traditions of Prophet Muhammad. But one thing we have to remember about Islam, which is that Islam is not primarily concerned with issues of theology and belief. Uh, what happens after man dies in complete details probably is not much known. The only bare minimum that the Muslims know is that after 
uh, after we die, uh, we will be held accountable for our deeds in this world. Uh, we will be uh, judged in accordance with what we did in this life. The Muslims believe, like Christians and Jews, in heaven and in hell and in reward and punishment. And the Muslims believe that every human being will be held accountable for his or her own deeds on the day of judgment. The Muslims do not claim any exclusive monopoly over salvation and going to heaven. According to Islamic belief, anyone who believes in God and does good deed uh, will go to heaven and will be rewarded. If you could ask God a question directly, something that you've pondered a long time and, and are hoping to find an answer to, and only God can give you that answer, what question would you ask God? See, as a Muslim, I think uh, if you look at the Quran, it, it asks you the question how this world was created, how we came about, we were nothing, and how we have come up to reach this, this brilliant capability. We were nothing, we were pieces of dust almost. And how all through all these processes, the Almighty has made us such brilliant human beings. And therefore, Quran encourages people and Muslims to think about and ask the question, how were you, how were you brought about in the sense that you go back and say, who is your creator and sustainer? So in that sense, Quran gives and Islam gives a lot of opportunities to have a direct face-to-face -face interaction with God almost any time you want. And in that sense, you keep on reflecting upon yourself. And one thing personally, uh, like Dr. Mamdaz Ahmad said in the previous session, would be if I were to ask, I would ask Almighty for his pleasure and for his blessings upon me personally. But ultimately, I think when we are looking upon this wide world and then the pain and suffering and then the disunity and uh, loss of human life that is taking place, we ask Almighty how this world can be a better place and how we can reconcile our differences, come together, be friends and brothers like he wanted us to be. Would you like to address that, Dr. Ahmad? Uh, when I was sitting there and I was uh, looking at the beautiful faces of the ladies who were singing, uh, I think there was one gentleman, you must have included him uh, for, to avoid affirmative action lawsuits, right? Two. Two. Oh, sorry, I, saw, I was sitting on the other side. But, but they didn't look so good. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> uh, when I was looking at the faces of those beautiful women singing, I could see those sort of spiritual happiness on their faces and smiles. And I was asking myself, I said, if I have to be face to face with God, I will ask for that sense of contentment and happiness that they felt when they were singing the praise of God. Thank you. Um, let's go to what's happening in the Middle East. What do you think of the territorial conflict between Israel and other religious groups? Uh, I think you phrased the question very appropriately because there, there's a perception uh, here in the United States 
that's what's going on in the Middle East is a religious conflict between Muslims and Christians and Jews, which uh, cannot be farther from the truth. What is happening in the Middle East is basically a conflict between two nationalisms, Jewish nationalism and Palestinian nationalism. What's happening in the Middle East is a political conflict, is a conflict on territory, on nation state, between two people, not between two religions. Because the Palestinians are not only Muslim Palestinians, there are Christian Palestinians, Protestant Palestinians, there are uh, Catholic Palestinians, and you will be amazed to know that three of the most prominent leaders of Palestinians are Protestant Christians. They are not Muslims. Uh, so the conflict is not between Judaism and Islam. It's between two nationalisms. When Israel came into being in 1948, there were some people who were already living in that piece of land, and they were Palestinians. They were uprooted, they were made homeless, and they want to reclaim their properties, their homes, and their land. So that's what's going on in the Middle East. If you, if they called upon you as a political scientist today, the United Nations uh, were uh, Israeli leaders, were President Bush, and said, Dr. Ahmad, we will do whatever you say. We're going to let you solve the conflict. And you solve it, and we're going to all sign off on it. How would you solve it? Well, if I am placed in that unenviable position <laughs> to, to solve the Middle East conflict, my ideal solution, of course, would be a one-state solution where Jews and Palestinians can live together in a democratic, pluralistic, secular state as one people, whether they are Christians, Muslims, or Jews, in one state with equal political rights, equal cultural rights, and equal religious access to their places of worship. That's my ideal solution. But as we know, this world is not made for ideal solutions. So what is my pragmatic solution? It is two-state solution, which is establishment of a state, separate, independent, sovereign state of Palestine, side by side with the state of Jews, which is Israel. So this is the best solution that, can, uh, that we can think of. Are we going to see that? I hope one day sanity will prevail. One day the Israelis will realize that they cannot destroy the Palestinians and they cannot kill every single Palestinian who wants an independent and sovereign state of his own. One day the Palestinians will also realize that they cannot destroy the Jews and they cannot destroy the state of Israel. Once this realization dawns upon them and sanity prevails and they accept the humanity and the dignity of the other, then this two-state solution will take place. There are so many religions in the world, and uh, we could just tick off 
any number, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Shintoism, Taoism. Uh, is there one religion that rises above all the others that all the others should subscribe to? Do you see that there's one true religion? Well, as, as a Muslim, uh, one has to accept his faith. So if I am a Muslim, then I have to accept that my religion is a true religion. Otherwise, I'm not a Muslim. This is as, as clear as that. Therefore, you have to believe that your religion is a true religion. And this is essential. Uh, because what you have to do is not only, you, you are not, you are never a born Muslim, you know, even though people are born Muslim, but you have to reaffirm and claim that you are a Muslim. I think that's, that's a distinguished aspect of being a Muslim. Therefore, in principle, personally, one would think that, you know, my religion is a true religion. That's why, because I am adhering to it. And on the aspect of whether uh, people are religious, I think there is a slight difference of opinion even among Muslims. What, what is believed is, at the time of Prophet Muhammad, the Quran came in stages, so the whole message of God was completed. Therefore, in the, in the Quran, there is a passage, today I have completed the religion and accepted this faith for you. This is a message to Prophet Muhammad. And therefore, many of the Muslim scholars believe that, uh, yes, it is essential that everybody who claims to be, uh, go to heaven and then want to be a true religious person has to be a Muslim. And then there are other scholars and as well as a lot of text messages in the Quran itself which indicate, uh, like I said, uh, Christian, Jews and, and the followers of the earlier prophets are all considered, uh, when, where, whenever there was a, a religious text associated with them to be the people of the book and people of the faith as long as they, they have true faith in one God and then they, uh, they do good things, uh, their religion as is in fact, Islam and Muslim. So therefore, uh, I mean, in, from the Muslim perspective, therefore one doesn't necessarily need a conversion to go from a Christian faith or a Jewish faith to become a, a so-called Muslim. I would say that as a Muslim, I would consider my religion, Islam, as a true religion, but not the true religion. Are there Islamic principles for male-female roles, and, and what are they? How do, you, how do you teach people about maleness, femaleness? As I said, I was quite impressed with the male-female role that you presented here. Uh, Seems like you were more impressed with the female role, yeah, Dr. I would, <laughs> I would certainly uh, uh, recommend to the Islamic societies to have this kind of... Uh, uh, proportionate representation that you presented here. Uh, uh, now, one has to make a distinction between Islamic principles and the practices of Muslims. You know, there's always a gap between the ideal and the practice. As far as the Islamic principles are concerned, there is a fundamental equality between men and women. As moral actors, they are equal. 
as spiritual human beings, they are equal. They have equal rights, they have equal privileges, they have equal duties and obligations to God. However, in actual practice of certain historical Muslim societies and contemporary Muslim societies, you do see that Muslim women are not accorded the kind of rights and privileges that they have been given in the Quran and in the traditions of Prophet Muhammad. But on the other hand, it's very strange. In Saudi Arabia, Muslim women cannot drive a car. In Indonesia, which is the largest Islamic society in the world, the head of the state is a Muslim. A, a, a Muslim woman. In Bangladesh, the second largest Muslim nation in the world, the head of the government is a Muslim woman. In Pakistan, the third or the second largest Muslim nation in the world, twice, Benazir Bhutto, a Muslim woman, educated at Oxford and Harvard, became the Prime Minister of Pakistan. In Turkey, another very large Muslim country, the Prime Minister was a Muslim woman. By the way, when are we going to have a Muslim pres a woman president in the United States? There was once a candidate for the vice presidential. We never heard. Calm down, please. That. <laughs> uh, let's let's carry that to the tremendous debate today uh, about homosexuality within the Christian Church. And as you know, recently the Episcopal Church uh, elevated a gentleman who's uh, practicing homosexual to a position of bishop, and it kind of shakes the church to its foundations. Is there teaching or understanding about homosexuality within Islam? I think maybe Dr. Mumtaz Ahmed can elaborate on some of the things, but uh, as far as the Quran is concerned, the homosexuality is looked down upon. The relationship between man and woman is considered to be the unit of the family, where I think the children are born, where they have the closest link to anybody else in the world. So Islam protects the family. The relationship of family the unit, as a unit of society is very high in Islam. So in, 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 as far as the teachings are concerned, the, uh, the actions of homosexuality are looked down upon and, and are not treated as something that is that is good, but at the same time, the practice of uh, homosexuality is, it has been existing in most of the Muslim society, both past and present, including in the Quran, there is citation about Prophet Lot and how some of his followers were, were doing homosexuality. This is looked down upon and not encouraged, but at the same time, homosexuality is prevalent and quite often ignored in Islamic societies. Maybe Dr. Mumtaz Ahmad can elaborate on this point to some extent. When, when you prefaced your answer by saying that Dr. Mumtaz Ahmad can answer this question, I hope you were not insinuating something <laughs> on homosexuality. I have no expert on that. But you made that clear, <laughs> Well, uh, I, I do concur with the main thrust of uh, Dr. Ismail's answer. Uh, the Quran does not approve of homosexuality. The fundamental sexual relationship 
that are recognized as legitimate in Islam are between men and women, and that too in the context of marriage only. Other sexual relationships are disapproved, particularly homosexuality. However, historically, Islamic societies, like other human societies, homosexuality did exist, but Islam and the Muslim theologians and Muslim jurists did not make a big deal out of it. They just ignored it, overlooked it, uh, tolerated it. I think the word, the best word I would say, tolerated it. Uh, like President Clinton's policy, don't ask, don't tell. In between services, we had a lengthy discussion about terrorism, uh, the mindset of the terrorists, and really uh, Dr. Ahmad gave us a great historical analysis of terrorism. So let me hit that question. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm going to hit this one now. What do you think of people like Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda? No, I, when I am referring the issue of terrorism to him, again, I was not insinuating anything <laughs> that he knows more about terrorism. Uh, okay, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, the organization that he represents, uh, I consider him basically as any other criminal who has no respect and no regard for human life. For me, people like Osama bin Laden, uh, people like Hitler, people who involved in violence, random violence, killing of civilians are all criminals and they should be treated as criminals. However, in social sciences, we make a distinction between what we call the, the, the uh, individual fallacy, which is that do not attribute the act of one single individual to entire community to which that individual belongs. When Timothy McQuay uh, was involved in the act of terrorism and blew up the building in Oklahoma, he was not representing the Christian faith. When Hitler killed six million Jews Christianity was not responsible for that. Only Hitler was responsible for that. When Baruch Goldsmith or Goldstein, who killed 25 or 30 Muslims while they were praying in the West Bank a few years ago, it was not Judaism that we should blame. It is one single deranged criminal individual. Similarly, I would urge that when you read in the newspaper that someone was involved in an act of terrorism, irrespective whether he used the word Islam or he's, he was a Muslim, it should be considered as an act of an individual criminal and the entire one billion Muslims should not be held accountable for what he did. So that's my request. Thank you. Is it at all possible that the New Testament is correct, right on the money, and that Jesus was God, is God, 
continues to be God. Like I said, as far as the Quran is concerned, the one of the cardinal principles of Islam is the oneness of God and his absoluteness. It clearly spells out that God was not born to anybody nor he gave birth to anybody. They, these are very clear passages from from the Quran and this is where I think we have differences in in faith. Uh, we, we believe that there is only one God and his attributes are absolute and unchangeable. There cannot be a change. There can't be a birth or a death or changes in God because he is absolute, ultimate, he is free from space, time. The concept of space and time does not apply to him. So when you attribute God, only thing is what, what we attribute, the attributes of God are absolute attribute but at the same time perceivable attributes. So in that context, I have to beg to defer to accept Jesus Christ, whom I consider to be one of the greatest messengers of God that has been sent on to this world, where what his name appears about 25 times in the Quran with the most respect. We believe him to be uh, like a messenger, like other messengers before him and Prophet Muhammad after him. In the first service, I asked if you had read the New Testament, and if so, what was your impression of it? And you both had good answers for that. Uh, the first time I uh, read the, the New Testament was when I was in my high school and uh, in a small town in Pakistan there was a Christian mission uh, staffed by husband and wife. I think they were somewhere from Midwest uh, I don't exactly recall what denominations they belong to. Very energetic, gentle souls who uh, were engaged in missionary activities. Uh, they lived uh, near the high school where I attended and once I was passing by their home, they stopped me and asked me, would you like to come inside and have some chat and know something about the United States uh, and Christianity? So I went in and had a cup of tea. They gave me a copy of the New Testament in the Urdu language, which is the native language of Pakistan. And I read from cover to cover this long time ago. The overwhelming and the deepest impression that it left on me was the concept and the notion of the mercifulness of God, the God is merciful. The description and the uh, other things that it uh, talked about Jesus Christ, I was already more or less familiar because I had read in the holy book of Islam, in the Quran. But I still have that very vivid impression on me. Uh, it was a great spiritual experience. It was a reaffirmation in overwhelming majority of the aspects of what I had read in the Quran. I didn't see any inherent contradiction between the message of the Quran and the Old Testament. The, even though there were references to Trinity, but I could explain to myself that ultimately all three 
Semitic religions are monotheistic religions. There is a fundamental notion of the unity of God in Christianity, despite the Trinity notion. So I still have that impression about the New Testament, uh, which is that it, it overwhelms you with the notion of, of, of the mercy of God. I think uh, what impresses me in particular about uh, Christianity and the messages from the Bible are the service that the Christian missionaries are doing and Christians as a people themselves throughout the world do to take care of the other people. Look, uh, right within my hometown, a, uh, a church from America was established and a chemical factory producing pharmaceutical equipment is there right in my town. So that they, they make these medicines available to common fellow human beings. The care for fellow human beings and the concept of making this world a better place to live is very appealing to me. And also, when uh, I'm, I'm not, first of all, let me disclaim that I'm, I'm not a scholar in Islam. I'm, I, I would be great if I'm even considered as a layman in, as far as knowledge of Islam is concerned. But I run into this passage very often uh, from the Bible, uh, let there be light and there was light. Was this the New Testament? Old Testament. Old, Old Testament. And that is so appealing and so precise. But uh, you know, I was completely shocked when I was reading the Quran. Quran takes that same context and tries to explain it. And it explains this. You can see that let there be light and there was light. It's such a beautiful statement. But in the Quran, the same thing has been rephrased by just two words. Kun fayakun. Be and it was. Be it was. Even it was is not two words, one word. Be it was. That's how this world was created. You know, the precision that is there and then the common context of the, the Bible and the Quran is very appealing to me. Uh, this is off the record, but as a scientist, do you have any trouble seeing that God created everything? Does that, do you, do you bog down in that because of uh, physics and, and astrophysics and all those you know, scientific disciplines? Or do you just see that the order speaks to a greater God? I think uh, as far as uh, science is concerned, and, and then looking back at the Quran, the exact nature of evolution is, is not completely ingrained. In the sense that even if a time is specified, that time could have stretched out much more than our time. In the sense that if you look at the theory of relativity, the time that we are talking about, the time between two events, is very different depending upon what velocity you are traveling with. So in that sense, that the whole process of evolution could have taken place in a much faster pace. And in that sense, the Islamic scholars do not necessarily are too hung up on the theory of evolution either. They can, can, they can reconcile the theory of evolution. Uh, and, uh, and in the sense that we, we look upon God as an, a being who can do anything is, is the concept that you come up with. And in the sense that he is doing it for us to take us from almost we were nothing. You can just 
think about how our life is and how it has come about. I think that is the most amazing thing. And then there has to be a creator and a designer. Without a designer, there is no world. So therefore, the reconciliation is great in the sense that if you have to have such a beautiful design, such a beautiful this thing, then there has to be a creator. That's logical to me, if I, both scientifically. If I may add the uh, Nobel uh, laureate from Pakistan, Dr. Abdus Salam, the physicist uh, who won the Nobel Prize some years ago. He was working on a, on, on, on a theoretical framework within the mainstream physics which tried to establish an integral relationship between creativity and order and coherence in the universe what's called the unified theory, theory. Unified, theory. unified theory of crea creation. So uh, there is no inherent contradiction between uh, the theory of creation of the universe as told in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the Quran, and some modern physical advancement. Thank you. Is Islam trying to take over the world? Ah. Well, uh, in what sense? Uh, first of all, uh, as, as I uh, was saying, that uh, Islam is not an expansionist religion in, in, in political sense. Uh, there are about 40, 44 Muslim independent nations in the world. Most of them are relatively poor. There are only few oil-rich countries in the Arab Middle East that can claim to be prosperous. Overwhelming majority of the Muslims are economically poor, militarily also very backward, uh, politically and otherwise not very significant. So in order to be able to take over the world, you have to have military power economic power, political cloud, and you have none of that. So in terms of material resources, even if the Muslims want to take over the world, they cannot. On the other hand, I see a sense of victimhood and sense of being persecuted by, on the part of the Muslims. If you ask a Muslim, and you would say, well, it is the Muslims who are being persecuted in Palestine, it's Muslims who are being persecuted in Kashmir, in Chechnya, in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Albania, and in so many other places in the world. So instead of being, uh, take, uh, trying to take over the world, they are being taken over by forces they perceive to be hostile. Uh, so I don't think there is any uh, truth to this notion that there is such a thing as Islamic threat to the world are being taken over. Since I get the distinct impression that I'll not be baptizing either of you today or anytime soon, uh, I'd like to ask you this question and, uh, and then I'll let you ask me a question. Uh, what's the main contribution of Islam to modern society? 
the like i mentioned to you i think the most important contribution is what islam's most important pillar is that is the the concept of oneness of god and and how muslims practice that to tell the world that there is one god you come and submit to him and this has been the message that islam has given throughout the world past very far past and the present and the other aspect which is very striking is the relationship of man to the fellow human beings where all human beings are considered equal who are born innocent and then how to uh, equality the concept of equality and justice and fairness and the responsibility for fellow human being to be responsible for his actions when you pray in front of god then you are like in the, on the day of hereafter you are standing before god and your conscience is completely open to god and where if you did any actions that hurt a fellow human being if you are standing in front of god that means that you are going to be reporting to him so this goes on five times a day so therefore this responsibility of on, on your part to god about your actions to your fellow human being is the other most important contribution that islam and muslims are making day in and day out uh, throughout the world and of course i i i don't claim to say that muslims are any better uh, as religiously practicing people are are christian but the if one were to think and and uh, contemplate on the message of the god this is very clear to all of us Uh, so please don't take the example of one or two radical deranged people to be representing islam and for that matter i think to go back to al qaeda i want to say that you know the uh, osama bin laden has no place in islam as such neither political religious or any significance he was unknown relatively unknown figure as far as islam is concerned so uh, under the grassroots islam is playing a very positive role among to uh, enlighten muslims and to have a uh, faithful life and to care about other fellow human beings atraman uh i agree with uh, what dr ismail has said i i do believe that uh, islam has a role to play in western societies as in other parts of the world islam is no longer a religion that is out there in africa in the middle east in asia islam has now become an integral part of the western societies it is the second largest religion in france third largest religion in germany third largest religion in england and in several other scandinavian societies and western european societies second or third largest religion in the united states there are more than 6 million muslims who are your neighbors your coworkers your doctors and your fellow uh, americans and your rocket scientists <laughs> therefore uh, islam has now become a mainstream american religion america Uh, has been described as a deeply religious society 
in fact, some Harvard sociologists recently said that India is the most deeply religious society on the face of the earth. And I think he said Sweden is the most secular state in the world. And then he said, America is a society of Indians ruled by Sweden. <laughs> to end this discussion, you understand what's going on, right? So, and now I would ask a question from you to end this discussion. We met this morning and I'm very delighted to have this opportunity to meet you and to meet with so many wonderful people here. Uh, and although you didn't try and, uh, to, to baptize me, uh, but uh, despite uh, that, uh, you have really, and this is, this is my sincere impression, you impressed me as a, as a deeply religious person, as a spiritual person, as a man of God. And my question is, how do you manage to motivate and inspire such a beautiful group of people and lead them to the path of God? Uh, it will be helpful for us Muslims too, please. It's the Holy Spirit in these people that leads them. And when the Holy Spirit knits people together and gives them a big vision, um, then all I have to say is let's do this together. Let's do what God wants us to do together. And the spirit of the living God, um, who certainly we understand as a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, does a work in us and through us that can only be described as a miracle. There's no way to, to plan it out, to plot it out. It's just when everybody says, I will let God use me, and then we will let God use us together, then you get some pretty good results. And we've seen that for 10 years. And I have invited both of you to come back and just to see what we do on a regular Sunday morning. Um, it's challenging. We are having you know, fun doing it, and we're being stretched doing it. It's the hardest work I've ever done. It's the most fun I've ever had as a Christian. So it's kind of somewhere between India and Sweden. <laughs> Dr. Ahmad, Dr. Ismail. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Let me say one word, uh, and that is um, Dr. Mumtaz Ahmed and myself are delighted to be here. We are extremely grateful and thankful to Dr. Simon and his staff for inviting us here and for you to be able to see the perspective that we have and we as fellow 
citizens of this country and we want to thank you very much and want to say may god bless you god bless you let's pray god we thank you for there's just a love that that binds us together that's because you made us in your image help us to see you help us to know you help us to follow you help us to complete the work that you have given for us to do and we thank you for this morning and this time of talking and understanding and, and building bridges. We ask that you help us to see our role in the world today and how we can serve you in that role as the church. We pray in your holy name. Amen.